0: Thank you for listening to Data Science at Home podcast with Francesco Gadaletta. You are about to get cutting edge insights from the people who are reshaping the world of technology with machine learning, data science, and artificial intelligence. It's time for Data Science at Home. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for tuning in and welcome to another episode of Data Science at Home podcast. I'm your host, Francesco podcasting from the headquarters of my company, Amethics Technologies. Today, I'm not alone. I'm with Aaron Gokaslan, who's a recent master's graduate at Brown University. He's focusing on computer vision, and more specifically, his uh, recent research has uh, focused on image-to-image translation. He also recently ended up on the news for a stunning contribution in NLP, which is one of the main topics that we are going to discuss in this episode. Hi, Haron. How are you doing? Good. Yeah, <clears throat> very good. I'm very glad to have you here on the show.
0: Uh, yep, glad to be here. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so,
1: do you mind introducing yourself to the listeners of Data Science at Home podcast?
0: Yeah. So, um, I'm a yeah, I'm a recent uh, graduate of uh, Brown University in the master's program. Uh, most of my research has focused on uh, computer vision, but I've recently been dabbling a little bit in um, natural language processing. Uh, I'm, yeah, I just finished up my master's and I'll be starting as soon as a uh, AI resident at Facebook AI Research. Most of uh, my computer vision work has focused on <laughs> things like uh, generative adversarial networks, um, particularly in, in the image, image translation space. And more recently, I've been messing around with very, very large uh, transformer language models.
1: Yeah, which are the, the two major things we're going to discuss in this episode I'm really... Looking forward to it. Now, before we get into the details of uh, image-to-image translation, and of course, the other thing that we have to <laughs> we have to discuss, uh, how did you end up in AI, and uh, more specifically in deep
0: learning? So yeah, I did some very rudimentary computer vision research uh, my sophomore year on something called WebGazer, which was essentially a very uh, simple uh, eye tracking application that ran in JavaScript. And I kind of, that piqued my interest a little bit. And then I did an internship at a place called uh, Vision Systems Inc in Providence, Rhode Island. And there I was kind of early exposed to deep learning. I found it really interesting. I took a class on it. And then I had this, essentially this one uh, side project that came out of that, uh, trying to get style transfer, working on, on, on shape change. And instead of just having, you know, like, you aren't familiar, basically, the you of style transfer. You want to do, like a painting or something, and you want to make like the the brush strokes and make them apply a different image. And so that works great for like impressionism, and uh, but if you want if you want to do something more complicated like cubism or caricatures, it doesn't work at all. Um, and so I kind of started hacking away at that problem, and it became grew into a into a full project and a research paper, and that's kind of how I segue into um, doing deep, deep learning research. This sounds very cool. We
1: are also uh, going to mm, publish some of your uh, academic papers to the show and append them to the show notes of this episode as always all the material that we are going to discuss in this episode will be uh, reachable and downloadable from the show notes of this episode. But now let's get back to the details of, uh, of what you do which is image to image translation. Now, for those who are not familiar with uh, with this uh, research topic, it's something that is extremely interesting and also very fun. Uh, Do you mind uh, give us a bit of, uh, you know, a brief introduction to image to image translation?
0: Yeah, so we'll we'll start with the simplest case, which is called uh, paired image to image translation. So the idea is to have a kind of learning framework that's very general and basically takes an image as input um, let's say in domain A and you try to use one to get the corresponding image in domain B. And let's say you have like pairs of images. The, you want to translate each pair from one from the input into the output and it could be very general. It could be as simple as like the style transfer stuff I was talking about earlier. It could be going from uh, RGB channels, segmentations, And the idea is to have a general framework which works for a variety of these cases. And so Particularly, actually, so hobbyists and, and such can have a simple baseline that they can run and have it just work out of the box. And it usually only gets state of the art on a lot of these domains, but it does a reasonable job and it's very general. And really, all it is is, is it's a you can think of it like a fancy um, UNET, which uh, is a type of net, uh, uh, network architecture with an uh, adversarial loss on the end to kind of enforce that domain constraint. And otherwise just that, and you have an L1 loss for each image pair, and that's kind of the boring, uninteresting case. It's nice, it's really general, but it doesn't really do um, anything you couldn't do with hand-optimized loss functions. The more interesting case is, let's say you don't have image pairs at all, but you have, um, let's just say you have a bunch of photos and a bunch of paintings, and you want to translate between the two. So in this case, it'd be very difficult to assemble a data set, like you could go and, I don't know, look at, find all of Monet's paintings and try to go and find a photo in the exact same spot if nothing has changed, and repeat. But that's very, very difficult, obviously. So the question becomes, can I kind of learn the general gist of it for each domain. And the idea here is where you really leverage the the power of of, of that adversarial loss I was talking about earlier, the GAN loss. And just to go into that briefly, so GAN is a generative adversarial network. Uh, It's composed of actually two networks. One, the generator, which generates the image, and the discriminator, which tries to determine if the generated image is real or fake the way, um, and essentially the generator tries to make images the discriminator cannot tell if they're real or fake and the discriminator tries to make it so that, so that it can determine that all the fake images are in fact fake. And this is actually a really powerful loss, particularly for image generation, because, and particularly because the discriminator can basically learn a function that you don't actually have the loss determined for so that loss in this case could be how impressionist the um the image is and then all you have to do is you have to translate from the first domain to the second domain but this that if you just do that it's ill-defined right because you just have to make a impressionist image there's nothing to enforce that that image looks at anything like the input so so the question becomes how do we solve that issue how do we make it so that the Output resembles the input to some degree. So this is um, where the uh, where a type of architecture called CycleGAN comes into play. So the idea is the easiest way to make it resemble the output, the, resemble the input, is to have the output be able to regenerate the input. The idea is you make a constraint that whatever function you're learning has to be bijective. Which means that you you given the input, you can go to uh, some output and go back to that input.
1: Is this something, something that resembles autoencoders, or am it, I- You
0: could think of it. You could, it's sort of like an autoencoder, except the, the middle of the autoencoder is the actual output that you care about. So instead of squeezing it down into a little vector, you're, the middle is the image, and that image has to satisfy your discriminator. Right. So, you can think of it as a type of autoencoder. Uh, but just doing it in one direction tends to not be very stable. So what you can then do is you go from the input to so let's say you, let's just make, make sorry we'll, we'll have domain A be the photoreal images and domain B be the stylized images. Uh, so you go from domain A, translate into domain B, and then you go back into domain A. At the same time, you're you're going from domain B into domain A and then back in domain B. And the networks between these two are shared, that you have, this is all done with just two translation networks, one that's going from domain A to domain B, and one that's going from domain uh, B to domain A. And and by combining these two, you have um, various things guaranteed, basically, that the function that uh, A to B and B to A have to learn have to be inverse to one another and therefore be bijective. Um, And, and that lets you do these cool tasks, like learning a style. It also lets you start to getting into something really interesting um, that I've been fascinated with called um, uh, like object transfiguration, which is imagine I have, say, a bunch of images of horses and a bunch of images of zebras. Similar shape uh, with a very different texture pattern. What you can actually do is you can just collect a bunch of images of horses, have that be domain A, Collect a bunch of images. Of zebras be domain B, and then you're trying to keep as much information the same as possible, so the backgrounds tend to stay the same. But what changes is the textures on the horse. Will you'll get the stripes of the zebra in your output, and vice versa. And now you have it. Not only have you basically learned what the horse or the zebra is in the image without any, without really any supervision besides like there's a horse in here and there's a zebra in there, um, you. You learned how to convert between the two, and it has you know a lot of very interesting applications in a variety of areas.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it, this sounds very funny. I've seen some some examples on the on the internet, uh, and it was you know very very stunning results. But uh, you know, despite these um, you know this, I would call them toy projects, in which indeed we can transform horses into zebras and, and the other way around. Are there some applications of image-to-image translation that might benefit, for example, you know, society, you know, from from a uh, a utilitaristic point of view?
0: Yeah. So aside from the obvious VFX applications and such, like you know, making new Star Wars films and other nice photo editing effects, um, there's some very uh, very interesting ones. For instance, let's suppose that. I'm trying to build a uh, network that has to learn self driving, like uh, for self driving cars, right? And there are lots and lots and lots of different cars on the road. And I may not have seen a lot of those car types, weird, especially those weirder types of cars, a lot in my training. You know? They may be really rare. But what if I could swap out those rare cars, which, um, more common and have it like just share the position of that more common car. So imagine if like, I could like look look at a toy look at a Toyota that's driving on the highway and imagine it was like some I know, Ferrari or Porsche or something. So that it still recognizes it as a car. And by doing that you can increase the amount of training data you have significantly as long as um as long as you, your out, output is photorealistic and looks and looks visibly like a like a So essentially so potentially you can use this to increase the amount of training data you have significantly, which is a super useful application. You can also um as I have, all these networks don't tend to be very extremely powerful in places where you do have training, training the lab, labeled training data, they are extremely useful in places where you may not like um, they allow hobbies and amateurs to do these types of interesting problems and also um, just have a lot of fun, to be honest. Like, you can do all these nonsensical nonsensical mappings, like human faces to uh, ramen I've seen as a fun example, which is odd. But if you do it well, actually, you can also use these things for uh, steganography, which is the act of hiding an image inside another image. Um, It's not a very efficient way of doing it, but that is a... very cool and potentially potentially if these networks get very very get even better than they already are it might be very difficult to detect
1: i believe that you know when it comes to images indeed we can touch several domains i would think also healthcare medical imaging and so probably there are there might be some applications there for which this approach might be beneficial
0: yeah and yeah i think these types of networks are really using a lot of uh, fun fun areas like i believe there's certain, I got like for, for instance the gender swap Snapchat filter can be very easily implemented using uh, this approach.
1: <laughs> that, that's fun I, I didn't even know of the existence of such a thing. I don't let me switch gear a little bit. Now let's talk about something that probably resemble <laughs> that that will will echo uh, to many uh, which is GPT-2. Now this is something that uh, brought you on the news <laughs> of uh, of many uh, important easy on the internet uh, and is one of the most recent models generated by OpenAI uh, and that uh, all of a sudden OpenAI refused to release so uh, please tell us what happened with GPT-2. Yeah
0: so GPT-2 is actually it's a very simple type of model it's called a language model and the task is pretty simple so you have a large data set of text and the idea is given some fragment of that text predict the next word so i know like tomorrow like if i said tomorrow it is going to blank then I mean, you could probably guess rain or some other reasonable response so that's really all it's trying to do now the very the the thing that OpenAI did that was very uh, was not interesting they basically took this Massive amount of training data, like forty gigabytes of text, which is huge by natural language processing standards. Uh, it, and it, they did this by actually combing Reddit and collecting, which is a social media website, and collecting all the content that had more than uh, a three po- a score of three or higher. And what this does, what's did effectively, is it gave Gave you this massive amount of of training that people actually care about, so not just like say the term, the conditions of a website, right? And this turned out to be really good at all these interesting tasks. So, for instance, you can get, without having seen any Wikipedia articles, you're able to predict the next word in Wikipedia pretty well. uh, Pretty well, in fact, to say the art at the time. And you Um, are able to do all these interesting tasks without any actual training data. So you're able to do things like summarization uh, just by learning, like, what comes after the, you know, phrase TLDR, which is too long, did not read shorthand. And it's able to learn to summarize uh, what it's just seen. It's able to learn things like translation or answering questions, general knowledge things. Um,
1: Wow. How big, is, how big is this model? How many so parameters? That's the
0: thing. It's huge. It's 1.5 billion, which is... It's barely enough to... It It just barely fits on a very high-end GPU. And it is trained on a massive, massive number of specialized hardware called uh, TPUs. I think they use 256 TPUs in their paper. Yeah. Because we can only fit a bat size of one on any individual one, so...
1: Mm. And so, what, what what happened? Like, why didn't they refuse to release the model
0: parameters, right? mm mm-hmm. Yeah, so basically, and this is the PR hype part of it, is that they said it was, quote, too dangerous to release because it could be used to uh, do things like generate uh, fake news. Mm. So, what do you think? It's Is it dangerous? I, I really, I'll get, I'll get into it. I can expand on this, but I really it really do not think it's that dangerous compared, especially compared to other, uh, other types of AI models that are already out there, like deep fakes and such.
1: So let me let me inform our listeners. What Aaron did, in fact, was to reproduce the GPT-2 model, uh, regardless of the, the decision by OpenAI not to release it. And in fact, you released it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> So,
0: why did you do that? So, it, I'm sorry. So, at first, it was just a simple research problem. Like, this was a really cool thing. I wanted to, you know, <laughs> see if, I as a researcher, if so I could improve on it, if I could use it in my work. Uh, so, you know, the first thing I did, you try to the contact them because they said they would share the model with other, um, other researchers. And so, I emailed them. And here, actually, let me back up. This. The first thing we did, actually, was... It was really cool. The data set they trained on was interesting. Um, and they had the so we tried to replicate the data set and we put the data set up back in April just so other people could uh, have a common data set to benchmark uh, against. Which was um you know, which is valuable so everyone can know it's it's the mo- if you get better results than GPT2, it's because of the model and not because of just the data. Um, so we put that out, and then we tried to uh, contact. We wanted to, you know, see if we do interesting things, especially with the data, data, and the model. And we never heard back. And we, we tried to contact them again, and again, and then and I said, okay, you know, we're researchers. We'll just try. We want to build on this. Let's try to reproduce the model. Uh, so we were able to get access to um, the resource we needed to train it. And. We we ended up d- deciding to just go and uh, see uh, see if we could and you know, it wasn't actually terribly difficult and then it kind of we kind of shifted and said okay so the whole premise of them not releasing this model is that only these like large research labs can actually do it and therefore if we don't release it then uh, quote you know bad actors can't get their hands on it uh, so that's which is, you know, we thought just patently false because if, if suppose it was you were you had some illicit intent like generating fake news, if you can afford to train it, which you can't, which they definitely could, like these, you know, like these troll farms and such can have it, budgets in the millions, you know, then they will retrain it. And it's not terribly difficult. It doesn't require a lot of domain knowledge. So we were able to retrain it by actually repurposing a lot of existing code off the internet uh, to do so, and the idea was to release it so people had an open, like, full end-to-end training pipeline to rely on that they could reproduce uh, this model with, and also to uh, show that this, for better or worse, is not an effective strategy if the premise that the model were dangerous was to be true, which we don't, which we didn't think it was. Yeah, it was like, and the point being, it's more dangerous to uh, believe to believe to believe suppose whether it's more dangerous to believe that the uh, model is not out there and to have it actually be out there and to know that it could be it at least is it is out there and it's a known issue now.
1: so did you burn all your savings to train this model how much did you spend
0: we're actually able to train most of it using a research grant but that's the funny thing is that there's actually a lot of ways to get access to so it's so it costs about fifty thousand dollars in cloud credit to train, which sounds like a lot. It does, but it actually isn't. If you if you launch a startup, for instance, um, and uh, you can apply to grants from all these um, uh, cloud companies, and they will throw out hundreds of thousands of dollars in compute for uh, for you to use um, in hopes of getting you hooked. So that then once your startup grows nice and big, you're basically stuck on their cloud platform. And so actually, that's the official cost. However, if you were smart, you could do this entirely for free without being without even claiming to be a researcher. And of course, that's you know, besides all the nefarious ways to get, you know, compute via, you know, stolen accounts or thing or you know even just like winning kaggle competitions they give out this computer it it sounds like a lot of money but it it really it really isn't that much.
1: yeah so you know we are definitely in uh, in a period of uh, very much democratized machine learning that's for sure from the hardware perspective to to the software to the algorithms of course you can find them online and you can download and just just train them Uh, this is for sure and uh, all right this is cool and um, so what's next like are you going to improve it or are you just you just released and everybody can access it and- I mean,
0: yeah yeah i think yeah eventually we're going to try to improve on it um, for now i'm just trying to uh, kind of track down all the details openai left out on their paper we were able to uh, speak to them a few weeks ago um, after we released the model and get some uh, details so we're probably going so the idea is first to kind of uh, reproduce and figure out the details um, OpenAI uh, left out, kind of similar to what uh, Facebook did when they replicated um, AlphaGo's Zero, which is other very large and difficult to train language model. And much sorry, not language, sorry um, AI algorithm.
1: Do you think it still makes sense for uh, for OpenAI to release the, the the former model at this point?
0: Yeah, I think yeah, I think it's would be useful to see. I mean, think it, it would be much. I would love it if they released everything, including the data set and training code, because that would that would kind of uh even though, even if it would kind of make my work delete, at least we have it. Yeah. yeah, but until then, I think if people want to make all these claims about these large language models, and people are releasing more and more of those now. In fact, just this week, a um, research team from Salesforce released um, a model of similar size training uh, on the similar data set that they claim you can actually control the output somewhat by conditioning it on URLs, which is kind of cool. Yeah. And and so like if you need, if you want to see which model is best, which is already difficult from a generative modeling perspective, because how can you quantify how good text is?
1: Yeah. You need Um, probably human inspection, right?
0: Well, human inspection, there's things like how well does it reproduce the training or test or hold out data which is still not perfect, but it's at least something. And it, it it's important to have these models so we can compare them and just um, further build build upon them.
1: Well, I guess that it would also be a, a reputation. Uh, <laughs> they, they would play a bit on their reputation, OpenAI, I mean, because when they promise something with their, you know, uh, the, the way they work, it's like everything is open source. And in addition to this, I believe that when they... when when you are dealing with public data and public algorithms, I mean, also the, you know, the model, the, 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 the trained model should also be follow the same path, I think, personal opinion. Uh, Aaron, let's switch again gear, and I would like to, to discuss a bit um, the future of artificial intelligence because there is a bit of, you know, there is a lot of hype. There are a lot of people who are also um, announcing some kind of AI winter again some others who definitely do not believe in uh, in in the next AI winter, probably the second one in history. Uh, what do you think is going to happen in the next five years?
0: So I think we're going to see more. I think GPT is a great example, if we're going to see um, the AI take a new direction. So in the past five, ten, five years or so, it's been very much focused on beating trained data sets or sets uh, like glue or. Um, Pentreebank, or ImageNet, and all these labels, and we're kind of hitting the boundaries of how well um, you can do with these simple annotations. And for things something something as simple as say like image segmentation. You can collect the annotations by hand, like draw like label each pixel as a table or whatnot, but it's very difficult to get it be perfect, and then you start like, if you want the algorithms to do better than a human, then you have to give it training data which is better than a human, which is kind of defeats the point. So I think we're going to see a shift towards uh, self-supervision and unsupervised learning, which is what qbt two and, and such are doing. They're not training on any specific um, uh, labeled training data. Instead, they're just trying to pick the next word, and by doing that, they're able to do all these interesting types of tasks, from question answering to translation stuff, just by virtue of doing that. And we're starting to see this uh, take place in uh, in computer vision as well. There's these a lot of really cool papers on. You have a camera moving through a scene, and let's say you collect um, uh, thousands of uh, YouTube videos of uh, people like walking through their houses and just moving around, right? Uh, for real estate purposes. and then what you can do is you can collect all that and just by taking those frames and you can as you, if you know how far the frames are apart from one another, which you do because you can use like mirror vision tricks like structure for motion and such, then using that, you just you can use it to like say predict the next frame. and by doing that, or an intermediate frame, by the way, and by doing that, you've actually learned the depth and you can predict depth just from that. Which is really quick, and you don't need any label training data for that. You don't need a depth sensor, which is very noisy and stuff. Right, and the more accurate it re- reproduces that middle image, um, or that uh, inferred image, the better it's going to do, and it, and you'll have to worry, um, and that and because it's relying on the actual underlying data that's how you start getting into this kind of performance which is better than what human annotators can annotate
1: uh, this is very interesting because uh, we, is, we even released a very recent podcast episode uh, exactly specifically uh, around self-supervision so uh probably uh you or the listeners of this podcast can uh, go back to i don't remember the number of the podcast episode but we discussed the self-supervision and uh, the intermediate tasks that you need to, you know, to avoid uh, labeled data, which is indeed, uh, you know, it sounds perfectly reasonable to have this in the in the future, in the near future, I would say. Um, mm-hmm. In uh, With respect to deep learning and reinforcement learning, both these technologies have been, uh, people have been writing about this a number of times and uh, many, many journalists, I would call them, they confuse or misunderstand these technologies with something that is uh, driving us towards uh, artificial general intelligence. So I would like to have your opinion on this. Um, and more specifically, do you think that deep learning and deep reinforcement learning, for example, are
0: sufficient technologies towards AGI? Well, I mean, strictly deep deep learning can approximate any function. So given enough training, enough parameters, maybe eventually, cause, <laughs> but realistically, probably not. Probably no, and probably not for the near future. Uh, these types of um, networks are uh, hyper-specialized. They can do one type of task extremely well. In fact, sometimes better than humans. Um, but uh, they they can even have like the facsimile of doing some type of reasoning. Um, but realistically, they're just memorizing the training data and spitting it out in uh, in novel and interesting ways and generalizing it. And I think, you know, to have something which is actually conscious, like can think for itself, I think we're very far from that. And reinforcement learning, like particularly, sure, you can use it to solve all these complex domains, um, but they're very uh, hyperparameter sensitive um, to do so. And the amount of data you need to collect is extremely inefficient. Like you give a you give a, a human a computer game and they can learn after a couple hours uh, how to beat it. Um, you if you want to treat train uh, train one of these computers to do it, it can take thousands of years in simulated play. Right. Yeah. In fact, some in fact in some domains it's actually outperformed by random search.
1: Well, I would also think that these massive models, um, you know, these one point five, one point eight billion. Parameters? Do they look more like lookup tables at some point, like <laughs> listing all the possibilities uh, that you can find in that specific domain? It,
0: it's it's interesting. So they don't exactly lookup tables, but they are sentiments. Like if you go and try to like search the exact words that it picks, that sample from distribution, they don't tend to appear anywhere in the training data. But the general sentiment is, and this gets more and more accurate as you increase the, the training data. Um, Nvidia, for instance, um, I guess we go into like wh- wh- why we decided to release the model in the first place. So uh, a week before Nvidia had released code to train this type of model on normal commodity GPUs, and to do so, um, I mean, you didn't need a large amount of GPUs, but you could do so. And at that point, then you then if you just have ten, twenty thousand dollars in GPUs just lying around, which a lot of organizations do, you could retrain these models. And what the things they did with that is they took it. And they trained models that were uh, much, much larger than what we released, I think up to eight billion parameters. And they showed like at eight billion, it starts to overfit and training it, training it exactly. Um, right. But if you downscale and stuff, it's interesting, like with the smaller bits that opening AI released, you can start to see this too. So it doesn't overfit, because it actually it actually underfits quite badly, but the central sentiment still carries through. I think a very fun one is that we, we've got When this tiny model, 117 uh, uh, million parameter model, was released, we messed around and we were able to get, you know, uh, spew out like uh, like a Trump speech, and it could not memorize "Make Americans Great Again." Uh, Sorry, "Make uh, Make America Great Again." Sorry, it instead output "Make Americans Good Again." which is a very similar sentiment. And, and of course, <laughs> as the model parameter got larger, they were able to output that exactly.
1: <laughs> semantically, we are there.
0: <laughs> yeah, semantically. Yeah, so semantically, it, it's a lookup table, but in actual um, text, not precisely. Mm. Um, and you kind of get it to output. output like Even the articles that outputs on prompts are, um, are very much in distribution and zeitgeisty. So another fun one is there's another paper that tried to make a fake news generator. Mm-hmm. Huh? And so it's only trained on news. And you try to ask it some and you try to ask it something that is really realistically possible, but it's not in training data, thankfully. It cannot do it. So the class I tried to see if you could generate a headline about I don't know North Korea nukes uh, you know nukes Japan, right? Thankfully, that is out of distribution. So if you put in North Korea nukes Japan. What you actually get is North Korea threatening the new Japan. It, it can't imagine North Korea would actually do that. <laughs> oh, I see the point. So it, it will not, it's like, if you join the asset to write about thermonuclear war, it will not write about it because it cannot imagine it, which is interesting. It's not able to make that um, simple but um, logical extrapolation. Yeah. And likewise, likewise, the cool thing with G two was the unicorn prompt, if you... It's only because it's actually seen the word unicorn before in training data. If you were to describe to it what a unicorn was, a unicorn is a magical beast or something like that, I'm, I'm, or some other thing out of distribution, it may not be able to generalize as well. So they they are, in a way, giant lookup tables, uh, but that's enough. I mean, that gives you pretty good results. Sure. I mean, Here.
1: as long as the domain where they where these networks, these massive motors operate are narrow enough for these
0: networks to to make sense. Exactly and that that limitation though I think really does make these things a lot a lot less dangerous than OpenAI uh, made them out to be. and also one of the other things that when the other reason we released the model was because they put out a policy paper where they basically see how often people were fooled by the fake articles even with excessive cherry picking right? And they basically said that, um, interestingly, after 770, uh, the model they released two weeks ago, um, after that point, people were not fooled anymore by the bigger language model. Which makes it really, like, even though perplexity goes down, like, I guess the accuracy in sentiment, in terms of like, how realistic are those phrases of words does not seem to go up at all. It just seems to start to memorize the training data more and more.
1: I don't know, I would stay here another couple of hours, but we really have to close the episode. (laughs) It was a very nice to have you here. I'm glad and uh, uh, thanks for taking the time. I'm pretty sure that the listeners of this episode and the podcast in general will definitely have a lot of fun listening to what you had to say today and um, also to access all the material that Will will publish on the show notes of this episode. There's also a way to access the model that you released, the GPT-2 copy of uh, from OpenAI And uh, Mm. thanks,
0: bye. Yeah, thanks thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun.
1: This episode is supported by Ametix Technologies. At Ametix, we love hard data problems, creative solutions, and the ability to impact the good of humanity with artificial intelligence. If you are an experienced, curious data scientist who eats pandas, scikit-learn, and TensorFlow for breakfast, be ready for challenges. We have something for you go to that's amethix.com/jobs that's a m e t h i x.com/jobs
0: you've been listening to data science at home podcast be sure to subscribe on itunes stitcher or podbean to get new fresh episodes for more please follow us on instagram twitter and facebook or visit our website at datascienceathome.com